Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. I've turned to the book of John, chapter 20, and to orient us to this passage, uh, we could start with our theme. What we've saw so, seen so far is that Jesus doesn't quit on us when we've lost our way. And we've seen that when the world seems crazy and it's very difficult to locate Jesus, he doesn't quit on us. And today, we want to talk about how Jesus doesn't quit on us when our sorrows are felt and he feels absent. To do that, we need three quick ways to orient ourselves to this passage. One cultural, one biblical, and one personal. The cultural orientation to this passage Uh, You might have a thoughtful friend who, when comes to this passage, sees a contradiction in the Scripture. This passage tells us that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, and that Mary Magdalene then went at the behest of Jesus and told uh, the disciples about the resurrection of Jesus. Whereas Luke tells us it was Mary Magdalene, certainly, but not only Mary Magdalene, but several other women as well who were at the tomb and then went and told Jesus about it. And a a thoughtful friend might say, ah, there it is, contradictions in the scripture. I'll just invite you to consider this in a short way. Let's imagine that you and I were talking and you asked uh, about an event at my home and and I began to tell you, oh, it was wonderful. After church at lunch, my uh, son and I had a marvelous conversation. He shared uh, meaningful things about what's going on in his campus life and what's happening in his uh, heart, and it was just so meaningful, I was blessed by it. And then a little bit later, uh, you're in the same place I am, and someone asked me a question, well, so what was it like uh, after church, you know, at lunch? And I said, oh, it was wonderful. Uh, My oldest son and his wife were there. My my daughter was there. My uh, second son and my third son were all there. Jessica was there. We had a wonderful meal and had a great time together. And then a little bit later, you come to me and you say, wait a minute, I, I thought when you talked over there that it was just you and your son at lunch at the table, but then when you're talking here, it sounds like the whole group was there, and I just say, well, yes. And you say, oh, isn't that a contradiction? Well, no. All of them were there, which includes my son, with whom I had the conversation that I told you about. You and I do this all the time. Depending on whether or not you know someone lesser or you know them more, if they ask you a question, you decide what to tell of the experience and the story. It's as if you decide to bring the camera in close, as if you were at the table there and it's just you and me and the son and just my son and I. Or in the same scene, if we were to pull the camera out, oh, everyone else is sitting at the table too. John isn't denying what Luke had to say. All the women were there. John has a focus. His point is to zoom in on Mary Magdalene's role. That doesn't mean the other women weren't there. If all of them were there, that means one of them was A biblical orientation. It's uh, the repetition of words. 
The word saw, S-A-W in English, is repeated multiple times. And she saw, verse 1, and he saw, verse 5, he saw, verse 6, he saw, verse 8, he saw, verse 12, she turned and saw, verse 14, I have seen, verse 18, when they saw, verse 20, we have seen, verse 25, unless I see, verse 25, see my hands, verse 27, those who have not seen, verse 29. So obviously we're meant to see something in this passage. What are we meant to see? Where is it that we're meant to see it? Another word is repeated again and again. It's the word tomb. Verse one, the tomb. Repeated again, the tomb. Verse two, the tomb. Verse three, toward the tomb. Verse four, reached the tomb first. Verse six, went into the tomb. Verse eight, who had reached the tomb. Verse 11, outside the tomb. What are we supposed to do biblically? We're supposed to see something. Where are we supposed to see it? At the tomb cultural orientation, a biblical orientation. Now a personal one. When my daughter was little, for a period of time when we would tuck her in at night, she would say this. As we turn out the light, she would say, Daddy, I can't see you. And I would say, that's okay. I can see you. Just give it a little time and your eyes will adjust. But Daddy, I can't see you. I know. That's okay. Daddy can see you. Just give it a little time and your eyes will adjust. Let's say a prayer and see how the passage takes us into the dark and then gradually helps our eyes adjust to the one who sees what we can't. Let's pray. Lord, here we are. We ask that you would open our understanding by your spirit, by and with this word, that you might Magnify yourself before us and our hearts might burn within us. We ask it in your name. Amen. The first thing we see happening here is something like this. We, we sometimes live in the dark. It's this little phrase that John uses. Uh, uh, it was the first day of the week, but it was still dark. Now, on the one hand, we mostly in the Bible would say, he's just telling us the historical detail. It happened to be early in the morning. The sun hadn't risen yet. It was still dark. But there's something about John and the way John writes. It's different from some of the other writers. Often, John is using the idea of light and darkness, not only to talk about physical details, but also to invite you to uh, a deeper meaning. And as you walk through this passage, you will see it's not only dark in the early morning, but everyone is in the dark. There's a darkened understanding there in verse one. She came to the tomb. She saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then she begins to say, we don't know where they've taken him in verse two. And in verse nine, they still did not understand. In verse 13, I don't know where they've taken him. In verse 14, she did not realize so you're saturated with a lack of understanding as you walk through this passage. Have you ever felt that way? In the midst of a day, you just say, we don't know, I don't know, I don't understand, I don't. That's what's happening here. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? And they're racing around in the dark. Verse two, she ran. Verse four, so they both ran. 
And you have this strange thing going on here where it seems like Peter and who's outrunning who? Peter and John, who's going to get there first? Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went, went in. Why are they telling us about this? Other than the fact that it happened, but also it gives you a picture of the scene. They're in the dark with lots of questions and everyone's racing around and scrambling about. And there is weeping in the dark. Verse 10. And verse 11. Forgive me, verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. In verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? In verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? There's lack of understanding in the dark. There's racing around and scrambling while it's still dark. And there is weeping, 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 weeping in the dark. The original word here is not just a little trickle from the eye. She is heaving from her gut. She is a Middle Eastern woman. Heaving at the death of one she loves the most. If you were there in the dark in the garden that morning, you would hear a grown woman weeping and wailing. Can you imagine a Christian like that? Not understanding, scrambling about, and weeping from her gut. And they're all humbled in the dark. Verse 2, we don't know. Verse 11, I don't know. It's the hard, those are the hardest words to hear when you're in an emergency room with someone you love. The tests have come back, but we don't know. It's difficult when our children first go off to school or they first leave the home and go off on their own. We, what will happen? We don't know. And there they are. Darkened understanding, racing around, weeping and humbled in the dark and asking for help. Verse 15, sir, tell me where you've laid him. I don't know. You seem to know. Tell me. Help me. And then there's persevering in the dark. I would like to show you and ask you to consider that John is putting him and himself and Peter in a humbled posture and is setting Mary Magdalene front and center. I'd like to show you what John does in the text. In verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. Now, at this moment, uh, some of us as Christians will say, there it is. The disciples saw the empty tomb. They believed in the resurrection. But I'm going to suggest to you um, otherwise. I'm going to suggest to you that they believed that the tomb was empty. But they had not yet believed fully that Jesus had rose from the dead. Uh, why would I say that? Because John says that in verse nine. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then in verse 10, John and Peter act like they don't understand. Because what do they do? They go home. It doesn't sound like people who looked into an empty tomb and believed the fulfillment of the scripture has come to pass and that Jesus is bodily raised from the dead. So they go home. And where do we encounter them the next time we see them? Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I ask you to consider, there's the beginnings, but not the fullness. The tomb is empty, but we know that when Mary Magdalene and the others come and tell Peter and John and the other disciples that Jesus has risen from the grave, we know from the Gospel of Luke, they do not believe her and they do not believe the women. He saw and believed. But they go home. Now, notice, secondly, why this seems to be John putting himself in a humbled position and putting Mary forward. Listen to how it reads. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now listen. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood. You see that? We went home. We went and locked ourselves behind doors in fear. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw. She saw angels. John and Peter did not see angels. Mary did. Why? John and Peter left too soon. Their fear, their lack of understanding led them away too soon. It was Jesus, wasn't it, who taught us to be asking, to be seeking, to be knocking. What's Mary doing? She won't leave. She stands. It isn't Peter and John who are met by the gardener in the garden. It's Mary. What's John showing us? As yet, we didn't understand, and we acted like it. But look at Mary. Let her be your mentor right now. She is the one 
Would you rather see, believe a bit, go home and hide? Or would you, stay a, would you rather stay a mess in the midst of confusion and the unknown, asking and seeking and knocking? I think I'd rather go home and hide. But Mary is the one who shows us the Christian response. Now for a moment, consider something here. You might have a friend, a thoughtful friend along the way, likely who's been hurt by institutional church life. And this friend might say to you something like this. The Bible was just written by powerful men to preserve their power. Have you ever heard something like that? If you haven't, you will. From your child or your grandchild's friend, your niece or nephew's friend. The Bible is just written by powerful men to preserve their power. Here's why, wonderfully, that's just mistaken. Even if, you don't, if that person doesn't believe the Bible, this idea is a mistake. Here's why. First of all, who is writing this? John. Who is John? He is a marginalized, oppressed minority. A Jewish man considered a dog by the Roman Empire. He has very little money. He is overtaxed and can barely deal with it as a fisherman. He is not a majority in power. He's a minority with no power. Second, what does this minority with no power do? He does what no man at that time would do. He does the Christian does what no man at that time would do. And what is that? He puts a woman front and center and invites us to learn from her. No man would do that. Secondly, why wouldn't he do that? Well, first of all, because men wouldn't. But second of all, a woman's testimony doesn't count. There is no... Uh, validity to a woman's testimony. If, if someone were going to say, I, I saw her alive and you wanted to rewrite the story, you need to write it as a man because a woman's testimony would not be, and not just a woman, the kind of woman Mary was. Poor, a history of demonic possession, and perhaps sexual impropriety. These are the very things the earliest Roman critics of Christianity picked up on. Celsus and Porphyry. Celsus' complaint about Christianity when it came to the resurrection was this. It is based on the testimony of what he said, quote, a hysterical female. I didn't say that. Celsus the Romans said that. A Roman man could not understand why a God would reveal himself to a female. And Porphyry added it. Not only was she a female, in his words, she was a prostitute and probably a peasant woman. All of that together, this is rubbish to them. 
You see, if you wanted to preserve power, first of all, John has no power to preserve, but let's imagine somehow he did, and you wanted to preserve your power, you, let's just say this, they really did a bad job of it. Because they're making a woman with a past, with no credibility in any court, the primary witness and testimony of the most life-changing event in history. That is not the way to preserve your power. What if instead, what we're seeing right now in the Bible is the very thing your friend longs for? They long for marginalized voices to be heard. They long for the voices of the poor to be dignified. They long for women to be dignified. And what if that's exactly what the Bible is doing? The Bible wasn't the majority, the mainstream, put it this way, the Bible wasn't in the mainstream publishing lane in the first century. It was more like underground indie literature. What did Celsus and Porphyry and the others not understand in the Roman world? They didn't understand what the earliest Christians testified. The Christians say this, not many of you are wise, powerful, or from noble birth in this world, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast because of him you are in Christ Jesus. So different from the gods and goddesses of the Roman world. So different from the way Rome viewed power. The God of the Bible is very different. He does not look for the strong, Jesus said. I came for those who are sick, not for the righteous, Jesus said. And so no wonder, with this God, this Lord, the light of Christ breaks into the dark. It's in an unexpected place. It's the tomb. Verse 12, the angel dressed in white. Everything else is in the dark. And suddenly, light breaks through. And the light in the passage is with the messenger from God. And here's what's amazing to me. <laughs> I think, first of all, Mary must have thought, what a foolish question. Why are you crying? I don't know what Mary thought. Was she like those on the road to Emmaus when Jesus said, why are you troubled? What's happening? And they said, are you the only one in Israel who don't, doesn't understand what's going on? I mean, did Mary feel that way? I don't know. All I know is this. <laughs> in the full history of the Bible, Whenever an angel appears to someone, what do they do? They fall down like they're dead. They're prone to worship. They're afraid. There are only two people, as far as I know. Maybe someone knows Bible trivia and you can help me out. As far as I know, there are only two times 
when an angel from God appears to someone and they don't even blink. The first is Gideon in his cynicism. His cynicism is so thick, understandably so, like many of our friends who ask the ancient question, if there's a God, why is there suffering? The angel appears to Gideon and says, mighty warrior, God is with you. And Gideon says, oh yeah? Look around. Look at the plight that we're all in. Tell me, where is God? And the second place where an angel appears and someone doesn't even blink is right here. Mary Magdalene. Perhaps, as Luke tells us, she with the other women fell and grabbed his feet. When they see Jesus, perhaps with the other women, she fell down when the angel appeared. But if that was the case, she must have got up again because she looks right at him. Do you know where he is? And what an unexpected timing. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the whole time, all of this racing around, weeping, not understanding, all of this, the whole time, Mary's not been alone. Someone's been in the garden. Verse 15, she sees him and thinks he's the gardener. What a lion heart. I don't know how... How big is Mary Magdalene? How, how big a woman is Mary Magdalene? She says, look, you just tell me where he is and I'll go get him. I mean, how, how is she tiny? Is, is she strong? She, she believes just by herself she could go carry the body of a grown man? But that's her heart. Look, I won't even trouble you. You don't have to do it. Just tell me and I'll get him. Because Mary is standing She's weeping, but if you believe her weak, you are overlooking what's plain as day. Why did the gardener let Peter and John do all this running back and forth? They, they don't see the angel. They go back. Why didn't Jesus step out on the path? Hey, guys. Why did he remain hidden and let them go their way? And why is it Mary he reveals himself to, humanly speaking? Doesn't it have to be because Mary stood? She wouldn't leave. She kept clinging, confiding, looking, searching, asking, seeking, weeping, knocking. She's going nowhere. They left too soon. She saw the angel. She saw the gardener. Why did he let all that happen and time elapse? I don't know. I just don't know. I know that when he gets word of Lazarus, he waits two days. Lazarus is dying, he waits. I don't know why. I know that in just a little bit, Thomas, 
will doubt and Jesus will wait eight days before he reveals himself to Thomas. Why does the Lord wait? Sometimes it's eight days, sometimes it's eight months, sometimes it's eight years. I don't know why he waits. All I know is that he can and all will still be well. And then the unexpected intimacy. When does Mary realize who this gardener is? It's something she hears. Her name. Her name on his lips. Mary. I would love to have heard what that sounded like. You know? What? She knew him by his voice speaking her name. And isn't this what John has already told us about the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name? And they hear his voice. And they know him. They will not follow the voice of a stranger. Maybe you hear, maybe you can't believe that this good shepherd would ever speak your name. Maybe all you would hear is your name spoken with sarcasm or cynicism or regret or like he's troubled or busy or overburdened or fatigued. Okay. But what if when he speaks your name, he speaks it as the one through whom you were created. What if he speaks your name as the one who has walked with you through thick and thin? What if when he speaks your name, he is the one who will die for you and rise for you and intercede for you and prepare a place for you and gather you to himself like a bridegroom with his bride? What? love there must be when your name is spoken by the one who has saved you what delight and when it is spoken we know him Rabboni she says teacher and now suddenly in the dark the lights go on there is the white of the angel And now there is the teacher. And the teacher is one who brings light in the dark. And now there is courage. Daddy, I can't see. It's all right. I can see you. Just give it a little time. Your eyes will adjust. And beloved, her eyes are adjusting because suddenly she is transformed. Rabboni, teacher, She begins to cling to him. Don't cling to me, he says. There's nothing mystical going on here like, oh, don't cling to me. I'm not yet in my... It's not like that. It's like, I'm glad you're here, Mary, but don't linger here. Go. Having seen me, Mary, I have a mission for you that you must go and tend to. You must leave me now and go tell what you have seen. And she does. 
what has changed? <laughs> Nothing. Caiaphas is still in power. Pontius Pilate is still in power. The disciples are hidden and afraid. They won't even believe her at first. Soldiers are all about. Everyone is scrambling. Nothing in the world has changed. And yet, everything has changed because Mary has heard her name spoken by the risen Christ. And now she has a testimony. I have seen the Lord. And no one or nothing will shake her from that. I have seen the Lord. And now in the dark there is a new courage. She's an ordinary overlooked woman with a sinful past with no rights in that society whatsoever. She comes to preach to the disciples that she's seen the Lord and they don't believe her. She has nothing in that culture except the fear from being identified with Jesus, but she has everything. Her sinful past has not had the last word because Jesus called her name. Her searching, her unanswered questions, her weeping in the dark will not have the last word because Jesus has called her name. The disciples' initial unbelief, their overlooking and condescending of her, will not have the last word because Jesus will call their name too. In their fear, hiding in the dark, in their disruption, their unbelief and their confusion, none of it will have the last word. Caiaphas will not have the last word. Pilate will not have the last word. Celsus will not have the last word. Porphyry will not have the last word. Mary Magdalene will have the last word because of the one who spoke her name. And so will you. Not many of you are powerful, are you? Not many have noble birth. Not many wise in the eyes of this world. Not many known. And yet, your name is on the lips of the creator of all things. And if that one is for you, who could be against you? What could ever separate you from such love in Christ Jesus? And so we go and we say, I've seen the Lord. He's spoken my name. And whatever happens in the world, not even death will have the last word. Our Lord, he will have the last word. And that word is good. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would Meet us in the dark in our weeping, in our asking, seeking, knocking. Even those of us who quickly, too quickly moved away in fear, not yet full belief. Thank you for your mercy to each one of us. Thank you. In your name, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.